Okay. A couple of things to, um, to make you aware of, especially here in this second service as we are experiencing um, pretty good crowds here on Sunday mornings, is this. You'll notice as you come in through the walkway, there's uh, three little signs hanging from the ceiling that say live, teach, and tell. Um, those are connected to, those are the kind of action verbs of our mission statement. We exist to live, teach, and tell the gospel that all may know the living God. And so uh, that's a big part of who we are. Hospitality is a big part of who we are. That's one of the best ways to live and in our living to teach and tell the gospel through hospitality. We'll talk more about that at the end of the service too. But that's what motivates us to say, scoot to the center. When we say scoot to the center, that doesn't somehow serve us. Who it serves is guests who are coming in, who already may feel awkward or weird about coming to a new church. Maybe they've not been in a while. Uh, maybe they've never been. They don't know their way around us. Or they're visiting from another congregation. Um, at, at some level, something's happened in their church or their congregation. It's been traumatic or challenging or hard. And the last thing we want to do is make it hard for them once they get here. So members, especially, when we say that, this isn't like some kind of control freak thing that, that John has or Paul has. Right? This is, we want you in the center so that when a guest comes in and is awkwardly looking for a seat, they don't get stuck in a seat that's uh, to fold out the last second, that they can scoot in and, and find those seats. So please, members, as we gather on Sunday mornings, especially in this second service, um, first service is filling up too. There's more room there. If you want to transition, uh, there's room, more room there if this is a problem for you. Um, but if you will, please go ahead and scoot to the center next to the person next to you uh, and scoot in and fill those gaps. So that's, that's why that's there. Um, second thing, we've noticed, um, especially in this service more and more often, that when we say that it's time for the invitation, that a lot of people in the back, about third of the room, get up and leave. Um, and so let me, let me warn you against that for a couple of reasons. One is it is super distracting to the other people around you. The reason we take those few minutes, just a couple of minutes for invitation, is the, the assumption is that what we've taught today, that God's Spirit is working through His Word. That's why we teach His Word. Um, it's God's Spirit is working through his word. If, if, that's, if your heart isn't there, one, you may need to consider your heart. Two, you, need, you certainly need to consider the hearts of the people who are around you who have to scoot as you scoot out or who are being distracted by the noise because it's, it's loud. This, this building was not built with the thought of this many people. There's just one room and one door, and then there's a big foyer that funnels all the sound towards this room. And so, one, that's, that's two. And three... If you aren't have, if you're not working with the Spirit in your own heart in those moments, in the singing or the praying or whatever, people around you probably are, and what they need is for you to be praying on their behalf. So I would say the two proper responses during invitation is to be engaging with the Spirit about what He's teaching you, or praying for the people around you in the hopes that that's something that He's got something to teach them. And so I would really love to invite you and encourage you to please stick around. It's only, it's only usually two or three minutes. It's not very long. And so just stick around for that. I know there's a temptation. I know it's a rush over in the children's building. Um, in the next few weeks, that should be largely helped and alleviated as we open a second building. And so uh, that's awesome. But um, please, please be patient with that. Okay, so now jumping into this, uh, jumping into the passage in John 17, um, we're going to take not a segue, well, I guess it's kind of a segue. We're still going in the same direction that we've been moving, but very quickly we're going to take a little bit of a, of a segue about the focus and the application, um, and I'll explain that in a second. Verse 10, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, first of all, the language all mine, that's, that's some very cool stuff. This, 
this whole section, this prayer that Jesus is praying to God, that the, the message of unity and unification is so woven through it that this is one of the main prayers Jesus has for his church, his immediate church in the first century, led by these 11 men at the time, um, and the, for generations to come. Um, we, with the topic we're going to end up talking about today, if we hadn't talked about it today already, we certainly would have in the next few weeks. Um, we'll get there in a second. But also, this, I am glorified in them, that should make us kind of feel a little warm and fuzzy in my opinion. Like that is a like, Jesus Christ, maker of heaven and earth, the, the um, for whom, by whom, through whom the, everything was created, that guy is glorified in his followers. Um, this, is, this is clearly the, this is someone who's proud of his kids, who's, who's proud of his siblings, who, who this, it's, it's, as even though that there is frustration and, and, and anger at times, of course there is, if any of you have kids, that happens. And yet at the same time, these great beautiful moments of God saying, I, I am glorified in them. And we talked about that last week quite a bit. Um, and so moving into this next verse 11, I am no longer in the world. They are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. This, this model of unification, the analogy of unification of his followers through this passage, through the passages before, is founded in the unification of the triune God. The way that God the Father and God the Son are unified, this is the analogy that he continues to bring home for his people. I want them unified like we are unified that is a miraculous prayer asking for the miracle of unification that humans are not capable of. We, we are not capable of pulling that off on our own. It's a miracle every time that it happens. Who are these? That they may be one even as we are one. I think certainly he is directly talking about the 11 here, but that is going to spread out as he, this prayer continues. And he's specifically going to reference not just these 11, but those who hear the message passed along by these 11 for generations to come. That means there's some application in here for us as well. Here's an example. This Sunday, the City Fest churches all over East Texas have been asked to focus some attention on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ when it comes to racial reconciliation. Now, like I said, looking at this week's passage, especially since I talked to Ephesians a couple of weeks ago at a family camp, looking at the next verses to come, this application of unity was going to come up at some week. And the fact that, that, the, that the church is involved in City Fest, again, look up City Fest. We made a, a significant announcement about it a couple of weeks ago. Look it up. It's a community-wide event for there's now 300 and something churches that are involved in this. Um, it's going to be hosted downtown. We want everybody to be a part of this. We people sign up to, to work it and all that. But to experience it, bring your non-Christian friends especially. But they said... It'd be really cool if part of the preparation for the City Fest was that we pick a Sunday and all the churches say, you know what, we're going to talk about the power of the gospel in regards to this topic in our community. Um, and so, uh, not ironically, not surprisingly, the passage we were looking at today fits very well in that when you say things like, that they may be one even as we are one. His followers would be one, would be unified there's more than a few passages about this, even all the way back into the Hebrew Scriptures. Understand that the unification of God's people, all his people, from all over, was always part of God's plan. 
for the sake of time today, I can't go into them, but it was, it's an easy search to find a whole lot of these. My favorite was found in Isaiah 25, 6. It's just a beautiful poetic verse. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So as awkward as this verse is for a Baptist population, mentioning wine twice, um, it still is this beautiful picture of this banquet that God has in mind. It's the vision that he's always had for humanity. And the vision is of all of his people coming together in a great banquet with his finest stuff from all peoples. This is his vision. It's what he sees Teaching through this early church, what their main issue in regards to race, and I'll explain why I put quotes around race, race just about every time I say it, but, but the concept of race, um, teaching through Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, Ephesians chapter 2, the last part of it, talks about this reconciliation that's supposed to be happening in the church. Now at that time, the main racial divide was Jew and Gentile in the early church. There's also other racial divide going on all around the world. But for the early church, it was Jew and Gentile because Jesus was born a Jew. He was born to a Jewish family. He was raised in a Jewish culture. He was born in Israel. Like this was, and so as he comes and declares this as a fulfillment of Jewish prophecy, and he, and he lives this out, it's natural that the early followers are kind of wrestling with, okay, so how much of this is a Jewish thing, and how much of this is a human thing? And, and they're wrestling through it all the way into the book of Acts, which we've looked at, as you have even his original followers being surprised when it becomes abundantly clear, unavoidably clear to them that, God's, that Jesus' gospel is not just for one group of people, not just for one people group, but to spread out to all peoples. Um, in the book of Acts, we have this amazing presentation of in three chapters in a row that we have the gospel going to an Ethiopian and a conversion and a gospel going to a Jew, and a conversion, and the gospel going to a Roman, and a conversion, back to back to back. Some of you are old enough that you still remember the idea that race comes from the, ch the children of Noah. All three, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, represented in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Yeah, 8, 9, and 10 of Acts. Boom, boom, boom. That, that the gospel is going out to all people to transform everyone, no matter what their race, no matter what their background is. Ephesians 2, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is, is encouraging these Christians, you're, you're getting it, you're getting it, here's some stuff to be thinking about, here's some stuff to be working through. So much uh, of the New Testament writing, especially the letters, is about this issue of, of understanding that, that being a following Christ transcends other barriers, it transcends other dividers. We'll talk about some of that. So like in Ephesians 2, um, 17 through 22, he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through him we both have access to one spirit in the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. One family, two races, one family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.17 notes this. 
Therefore, if any was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God and through Christ who reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Now, I am not a fan of the misnomer race and the way it's used today. I think it's, I think it's an inappropriate, it's, it's the incorrect word to be used there. There is one race of humans. It's called the human race. Now, being said that, this concept, like all others, is, of course, it's abused by all kinds of people. Welcome to people, right? I mean, if you, if you didn't know this yet, it's, it's amazing to me how people continue to be blindsided by the fact that when you get four or five people together, you already have great expressions of, of sacrifice and heroism and love, and you already have represented great expressions of darkness and greed and self-absorption and evil. If you didn't know that already, I hate to break the news to you, that's what it's like to be around people, to know humans. In fact, honestly, if we're all really honest, if you have one person, you already have all of those things wrapped up, right? You have all the stories, the great darkness to be told, and the great light to be told in just one person, especially a follower of Christ. I'm not a fan of that. I think that misnomer is there. But, but we know what it means. People from different places, especially nowadays, if their skin tone is different. Um, it's wild to me the racial reconciliation a few decades ago had to include more than, than a lot of what we think about today. Like I, I actually remember, though I had no idea what this meant, my grandmother referencing somebody as Irish. And that was a negative thing, like, well, you can't be dating that guy, he's Irish, right? Like, she shouldn't be talking to, like, how do you know? Like, I didn't, I, I didn't know how to tell apart people who were, like, I don't, they all look the same to me. I have, no, I have no way of telling people apart like that, right? This racial reconciliation, here's what it is, fundamentally, the acceptance and love in the midst of differences around the concept of race. It's really nothing more than that. And it shouldn't be all that staggering for us as Christians. We should always be learning in this. Um, one, of my, one of my ways of understanding this better, and again, it's, it's, it sounds like I created this for this reason, and I guess in some ways we both did, but my friend Stephen Young, who's a pastor here uh, in Tyler, an African-American man, and he's been here, he's preached in the pulpit, and we've, we've, he's taught and that kind of stuff, and, uh, and uh, Stephen's a, a, really, a really good guy. Like I, I really like him, and so we get together every once in a while. It usually works out to end up being, because we're both busy, you know, two or three times a year, but that's our... We get together, we have lunch, and part of the purpose of that is so that we both have someone. So let me just, I'm probably going to read more than I normally do. I'm learning to love a brother who has a different experience of life because of his race. Different than my experience because of my race. Neither of us, and I really think this, neither of us have any overt or intentional racist thoughts or intentions. Not overt ones. But more than a couple of times, he's had to let me know that a certain question was a white guy question. It comes up all the time um, when we're talking. And, I, and that's part of our understanding is I'm allowed to ask questions that I understand they might be offensive. I don't know if they're offensive. I really don't know. Just in pure ignorance, can I ask you that question? And he has the permission to ask me the same thing. And so there have been times when I've asked questions. Usually it involves like he faces a certain situation and then I will ask like, well, why didn't you do this? And he'll go, that was a white guy question. Um, and that's, I'm learning, that's, it's, he has a, such a different experience than I do in some ways. This is, this is not, revol or at least shouldn't be revolutionary. Philippians 2 teaches us that we 
learn about loving someone where they are, that we love and serve them as though they are more significant than ourselves. This would be anyone. We are being the ambassador. Stephen and I are being ambassadors to one another in the ministry of reconciliation. And that allows us both to be more powerful and potent in regards to those we have influence in, like our churches, as far as the same thing. Realizing the reconciliation Christ has given us, because keep in mind, there's nothing, listen to this, there's nothing inherently magical about human beings being reconciled to one another unless it is reconciled under Christ. There's no such thing as true reconciliation without that. Does it matter? Maybe. Does, is it significant? Maybe. But understand the eternal reconciliation that Christ has given us, that's what reconciles us. No matter what other differences there are, and there's differences between so many of us in here, this, racial reconciliation is not the only one. I mean, you've got reconciliation between the sexes. You've got reconciliation between um, neighbors. You've got reconciliation within marriages. You've got reconciliation among friends. Reconciliation between churches. Christ has called us to be ambassadors and ministers of his reconciliation because he reconciles us to the Father and therefore we get the opportunity to do that with one another. Like listen, in Ephesians 2, back to Ephesians 2, 15 and 16, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. Does that sound like two becoming one, like the God and Father and God the Son? Yeah, two, two and one. So making peace that they might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. In Christ, any hostility that's there, including about race, should be dead. That is the, that's the consequence of being in Christ. The way that there's so many churches, and I don't have time to unpack this very well, so I hope this isn't confusing, the way so many churches are largely black or white or Hispanic or Asian or whatever today, I think often has little more to do, has little more than just about taste or style or culture or even just proximity. I think a lot of times that's the case today. That if you visit a church that's largely a different race of people, your reason for not going back has nothing to do with the race. It has to do with the fact that 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 it, it wasn't comfortable enough or they did this too long or they did that too short or they, that, that, that they dressed this way or that way. Like that's, I think a lot of times nowadays, that's what we see. However, I do believe the fact that multiple church cultures were allowed to come into creation at all is a consequence of sin. There never should have been this division that never should have been allowed. We shouldn't have 150, 200 years of black church culture and white church culture or Hispanic church culture. Of course, those different things are going to different cultures from different reasons, different nationalities or whatever. But the fact that there's different church cultures in my mind that should never have been allowed to happen. But now it's here, and that's a big part of what we face as challenges now. And as we wrestle through these questions, they're not easy answers. Um, by the way, I haven't caught on to that. Um, if you're still someone who's posting memes to solve things like racism, yes, stop. That's this is an incredibly complex question. It's a very individual question. It's, it's a cultural question. It's all kinds of different questions all rolled into one. It's not gonna be solved easily. And if you're still one of those, even though you've been coming to this church, who's looking to, um, looking to humans to solve this problem, let me encourage you just to stop that too. Like this is not a problem that humans can solve. It is solved in Christ. And, and he, unfortunately, humans can make that even really hard. But, but the truth is, you're not going to find a mass of humans who are going to solve this. We'll talk more about this in a minute. Anyway, um, for years, for years, 
People of color needed a community in order to find respite from the injustice that surrounded the rest of their lives. And they needed to come together and experience that. And often, there were even churches either through, in some cases, law, but through treatment that said, you are not welcome here because you're of a different race. That is in direct defiance of the teaching of Ephesians 2. That should never have happened in the Christian church. should never have been tolerated. And it wasn't by all Christians, by the way. Again, it's more complex than that. Listen to this. Matthew 5, 23 says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember, this is Jesus speaking, in the Sermon on the Mount, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. How many generations of gifts were given to God with a minimum of appreciation on his part because of the lack of reconciliation in the church? I I shudder to think about that. I love to thank service people for their service. And it's something we're trying to teach our kids as well. I love, um, I love teaching my kids that, that professional responders, soldiers, others like that, that they're like superheroes. They're the modern day version of that. I, we, we love encouraging our kids to do that. When I have a conversation with someone and they reference that they were in the military, immediately you'll hear it come out of my mouth. Thank you for serving. I mean, you, you by serving have given me and my children the freedom to not serve and I know you purchased that for me, and I, I so appreciate that in that way. Like, I, I, I want that to be clear. Like, we, and we do as a church, we appreciate the gifts that God has given us in one another through those type of roles and through those type of people. I appreciate those who have fought for freedom and justice and biblical truth, even those in the past, even those who have already died. To say, therefore, I can say, many of my ancestors were not those fighting against racial slavery and and endemic racism. They weren't. An example in my past is a guy named Wade Hampton III. Um, According to family legend, he had many admirable qualities, um, not the least of which was the ability to grow an epic beard, apparently. Like, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, Even according to Wikipedia today, so I was trying to mix family legend with, with what other red websites said about him, Uh, But he hunted bear with a knife only when he was a young man all along South Carolina. Allegedly killed as many as 80 bears with just a knife. This is a bad dude, okay? So um, as a senator in South Carolina, he opposed secession um, of the North and the South. But as many did back then, he supported his state leadership as the higher authority to the national leadership. He was a cavalry general for the Confederacy. There have been many great godly people with his last name. And there, I'm sure there were others at the time. Um, my own grandmother, who loved me so well, this was her maiden name, was Hampton. However, in the midst of these honorable traits is also this. He had one of the largest population of slaves of anyone in America. Different from the biblical concepts of slavery, American racial slavery was a moral blot rooted in the deepest evils of greed and the systematic abuse of fellow humans. After the war, he was at least strongly linked to the suppression of the black vote in South Carolina and very likely was directly involved. Um, It it kind of horrifies me to say as many as 150 African Americans were murdered during the 1876 gubernatorial campaign in which Wade Hampton became the governor of South Carolina. As an Episcopalian, which he, he was an Episcopalian, I suspect he probably even used the Bible to defend his racial ideas, and slavery. 
I don't know, he wasn't a writer who left stuff behind that I've gotten to see. Was he even one of those who thought that black people were less than human? Again, I don't, I don't know. If he were here today, though, could he see his error? It's a question that's interesting to me. I don't know. Could he and probably so many other ancestors of mine understand their bigotry and hatred for what it was? They aren't here to apologize. They're dead. If they understood scripture, life, and color as we do today, I would hope they would be eager to repent. I would hope. Um, I hope they would apologize, but he isn't here. And the others of my ancestors who committed these types of uh, acts, were not, they're not here. So I get to, in the same way I can thank people who are already dead, I can apologize on behalf of people who are already dead. Um, to my black family and friends, I'm sorry for their behavior. I'm sorry on their behalf for what they did to some of your ancestors. They were wrong. My own childish, racist understandings were sinful and unbiblical. Luckily, God put, allowed me to put aside childish things. And I've been able to outgrow of any of that kind of stuff that was re mostly rooted in just adolescent childishness. But I still repent of them on my behalf and on the behalf of my ancestors. I I'm not ashamed of being white. That's not what this is. Noth that is nothing I had nothing to do with it. There's no shame in any skin tone at all, and shouldn't be. That's, in my mind, that's silly. I am ashamed of how many of my ancestors treated so many of the ancestors of so many African-American brothers and sisters. I am angered and embarrassed when I hear of modern expressions of racism that my brothers and sisters with darker shades of mind experience, sometimes still today. I believe any of them, any of my ancestors that knew Christ, that someday they will thank me in the New Jerusalem for speaking on their behalf and will be eager to do the same. I am profoundly saddened that none of them um, that I know of got it like I have the freedom to get it. There have always been Christians who interpreted the passages of loving each other and being good neighbors well. There always have been. My ancestors didn't listen to them, apparently, most of them, to the ones I know of. Um, they did not realize and apply those issues to loving other Christ followers no matter what their melanin levels in their skin is. Because I am freed by Scripture to love my brothers and sisters from all races. I get to share in a joy that my ancestors missed. The celebration Christ called us to experience in memory of him, for example, communion. My ancestors probably in direct defiance of Paul's teaching of Ephesians 2 and many other places refused entry to people of other national descent and cheated themselves and those other people of the blessing of experiencing here on earth a beautiful expression of the very banquet that Isaiah prophesied. In our case, communion. Isaiah's feast for all nations, they didn't get to experience. At least not those who are Christ followers. Maybe they get to someday. But I get to experience it today. I get to experience Thanksgiving, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion with people from all peoples today because of the freedom that Christ has given us. 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us um, and when G, the, Paul is writing about what Jesus did in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat and drink uh, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But if you don't catch it we often talk about um, and again there's, there's need for this. We sometimes especially in the Baptist church we want to clarify what things aren't. We want to clarify what family dedication isn't. We want to clarify what, com, what um, communion isn't. We want to clarify what baptism isn't. 
And there's, there's, a, there's a healthiness in that. But sometimes it causes us to forget to teach about what these things are. One of the things that communion is, is listen to this, in 1 Corinthians 11 also, uh, starting in verse 33, so then my brothers, when you come to eat together, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Listen, apparently the Corinthian church who did not receive as warm a letter as the Ephesians did, um, that, that Paul is saying, listen, here's the problem. You guys are coming together for communion, for the Lord's Supper. Some of you are bringing so much food that you can't eat it all, and so much wine you're getting drunk. Meanwhile, other believers right around you are starving. This is, this is nuts. You are not getting it. This needs to be done in community. That's what this is. We are doing this together. Paul's, as we pass out the elements here in a second, Paul is going to explain this at a level that I think will, will kind of open your eyes and some, yet some new understandings of this. So I'm going to ask him to come up and those who are going to be passing the elements um, to come up as well and, uh, and to be prepared to pass out the communion. Somebody wave. There we go. Okay, good. Um, uh, to, this is about together. This is about us in community. So... Um, let's take communion together. Paul? Uh, what the deacons are going to be doing right now is they're going to be uh, grabbing these uh, trays and going and passing them out. As it gets passed, uh, you'll reach down uh, and pick out. It'll be two cups stacked together. One of them will, have, uh, will be the cup of the juice, and the other one will have uh, the bread inside of it. And so they're doing that now. While they're doing that, um, a little bit of a conversation we get to have. Uh, each time that we do one of these devoted Sundays, uh, and in particular get to take a little time to teach on an aspect, uh, this time on communion uh, or the Lord's Supper, uh, we get to highlight different things because a lot of when Jesus gave this institution to his followers and to us today, uh, he is drawing upon, obviously, a lot of, a lot of symbols uh, that he is drawing upon to make complete this one picture. So it isn't that uh, we can just take one simple symbol or aspect of this uh, and then be able to say we now understand all of it, but hopefully by taking various aspects of this and putting them together, we can have a greater appreciation or greater understanding of what uh, we're doing and what we're celebrating. So, uh, so this morning, what we're gonna be looking into is specifically the idea of the sacrifice of Christ what Paul in the Corinthians is calling us to remember, do this in remembrance of me, Jesus' words, calling them to say, when you do this, remember my sacrifice. And in this, in particular, drawing upon his sacrifice as the complete sacrifice. So for the Jewish audience there, their mind immediately would have been drawn back towards uh, the animal sacrifice of their scriptures, now the Old Testament, uh, and would have drawn into images that they know they would have experienced from having participated in the animal sacrificial system. We sometimes miss out on that because we don't. We don't gather here and have to wade through the goats and the bulls that are in the pen uh, to get our way in because it's not been a part of our worship as Christians. And so even so much so um, that the uh, writer of the Hebrews calls for it, probably in chapter 10, to end. Because he's saying Christ has, he's the ultimate sacrifice. He has fulfilled all of this. That, those sacrifices, that was just a symbol. Christ was the one who fulfilled it. And so what we're doing is we're remembering back to his fulfilling sacrifice. 
Now, when we think about this idea of communion and think about the idea of sacrifices, um, we probably miss some of the direct connection about what we're doing now and the tie-in to what it would have been doing in the animal sacrificial system. Because I know for my, myself, I know oftentimes I think, when I think back onto the Old Testament sacrificial system, I, I typically think of the sacrifice of atonement, uh, the burnt offering, uh, the one that they, they, they uh, slaughtered the animal, put it on the, on the altar, and in the entirety of it is burnt up, and that is a meal uh, that is only uh, partook by God himself. And the burnt offering, there's only one partaker, and it is all going up for the Father. It's approved meal for God. But that's not the only sacrifice uh, that we had. There's a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament, and a lot of them had different notions of uh, participation. There was actually some meal sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, that had two participants. It was just God who partook, but also the priest who partook in it as well. God would eat some of the sacrifice, what was burnt up to him, and the priest would eat some of it as well. In the uh, peace offering or in the thanksgiving offering, uh, there was actually three participants, multiple participants. Uh, part was burnt and it was God. Part was for the priest. And then part of it was for the sacrificer. Um, and he would share it. Oftentimes it would be with his whole family or with other families that he would invite. It was a shared sacrifice. The same sacrifice that was being offered to God was now being partook and eaten uh, together. And part of doing that in the Old Testament was a lot of different things. One, it communicated uh, in the ancient Near East whenever people ate together. It was a lot of uh, community of fellowship. It would communicate how they are together. But in particular, the focus about in them being together uh, was also in them taking a part of this same meal that which God himself took part of. They are putting their seal of approval on it. They're basically saying when the priest ate of his meal um, in it, he is saying, I count this sacrifice as worthy to God. He's not the one who's approving it. God is approving it, but he wouldn't partake if it wasn't appropriate for God to partake. And in a sense, in the same thing with these Thanksgiving offerings, when uh, somebody would go and they would offer their sacrifice to God and the priest would partake and their families would partake, what they are saying is the sacrifice we are partaking of, the only reason we get to partake of it is because it's appropriate to give to God. They are in essence testifying to one another of the appropriateness of the sacrifice. What we are doing this morning when we take communion is similar in that same notion. When you take the uh, cup and when you take the bread and you partake of it, what you are doing is, yes, in one sense, you are claiming Christ's sacrifice is enough for me. My sin, my brokenness, my evil, in my own heart, Christ's sacrifice is enough for me. But also, when you are taking it, you are not taking it alone. And so by you taking it with other people, you are also proclaiming then this same sacrifice that is good enough for me is also good enough for the brother and sister next to me, the one sitting across the aisle, the one in this room on the other side. You're saying that Christ, you are testifying Christ's sacrifice is good enough for all of our sins. I think this is why Jesus says, leave the if you have something against with your brother, leave the sacrifice at the altar and go and search them out. This should be the same question we're asking ourselves before taking it. Do I have a grievance with one of my brothers or sisters, even in this room? Is my spouse and I in good accord? If, if not, maybe I shouldn't take of this right now. 
Um, or maybe in me taking this, I know I am also promising to God and thanking him for the sacrifices greater to, great enough for me and great enough for them, so I need to go and find them immediately after taking it and, and acknowledge this truth. I think this is also why we say, uh, why the scripture commands that, um, that this, this institution is only for believers. Uh, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, then really there's no reason to take this meal um, because you're not remembering the sacrifice. You're not even counting it in yourself great enough for your salvation. So why, why do this? It just a, would be a meaningless act. That doesn't have to be. If that is you this morning, then it, you, this could be the time that you simply reflect and now come to the understanding for the first time to say, yes, Lord, your sacrifice is great enough for me and you could put your faith in him. Today could be the day of salvation. But whatever it is and however we're about to respond, when we do this together, I want you to ask yourself that question is, is, am I in right now believing that Christ's sacrifice is enough for me and am I willing to take this as a testimony to know that Christ's sacrifice is enough for my brothers and sisters doing this with me? And so that can be our focus as we do this together. So reading again through um, the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians, it says this, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that in all the ways you could bring about salvation, you chose to break yourself. Such suffering demonstrated is a testimony of your great love for us. And as we remember this work this morning, remind us of a salvation that is continuing to work out in our lives. Remind us of a great salvation that is continuing to work out in the lives of others. And Father, remind us of how that salvation is one that draws us all together under your kingdom and under the great work that you have given us as you have bestowed upon us the identity of your children, all of us as your children. And so this is what we pray until you come, Lord. And so we ask, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. That brought for you new clarity as to what the unity of the, of the Lord's Supper is that that this day, as brothers and sisters around the world, in every nation um, around the world, as they partake of communion or the Lord's Supper, or when they do, that is a unifying thing under Christ. And it transcends things like sex, race, background, socioeconomic status, authority levels. That is all transcended by what Jesus Christ has done. And that's why even, even if, um, as, as Dr. King famously said, like the, the most segregated hour in America is Sunday morning from 11 to 12, and there's still something to that, and we still wrestle through the, what that means and what it doesn't mean, um, that the truth is also that, that the church, the capital C church, is diverse, and is diverse from every people and from every tribe and from every language, and someday Christ calls us all together to celebrate him under those conditions um, and with that being said, 
Um, for some of you, you may think, what's something, is there something that I could be doing to engage in this as well? And much of what we've talked about, or that I hope I've been able to model, is part of it. Engaging in the conversation, getting to know people, and seeking people out who have different experiences than you do is a healthy way to reconcile. Um, so is praying, and, and if you need to, apologizing or owning um, sometimes, especially for us, when we, um, for me as a, as a white man to say, um, I remember when, when we invited an African-American pastor to preach, Pike and I did, to preach downtown, and for, he, for Pike and I, this was a very simple, easy decision to make, like, sure, when would you like to preach? And for him, it was, you're inviting an African-American man to preach in the pulpit of a, of a church founded in 1848? Like, that's, that's meaningful, to him it was, and for us to go, wow, well, that's, that's an easy call when you want to do it. Like, it, that doesn't mean it's not meaningful to the other person. We have to learn to know other people well enough to know what is meaningful to them to love them well. If you're in a marriage, you know this. We also have a little bit of a humanitarian crisis that's close enough that we can engage in a cool way. So, as I said, one of the roles of the church is to be hospitable. And what that means is that the church is constantly going, how do we, looking around the world and saying, who is lacking in hospitality? Who needs to be served? Who needs to be taken care of? Who needs to be loved? And then the church gathers up and goes there. In fact, let me just tell you, you're not going to see this in the media. You're not going to read about this. Sometimes you don't even read about it very much in Christian publishing. But the truth is, if there is a group of people in the, on this planet who are suffering, who are struggling, who are facing crisis, the church is there. I've, 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 every time I've run that test and done the research, it turns out Jesus has already led members of his body to be there. So we don't have to recreate this stuff every time. So right now we have this crisis going on on the southern border of America. And, and so for us, and it's become a racial, kind of, a, kind of a racial thing, even if that's not fundamentally what it's about, it's become that. And so for us as Christians to go, how do we, instead of depending on the world to take care of a crisis like this, um, because the world always fails at stuff like this. And gathering together worldly people for them to come up with conclusions. The only thing worse than worldly people's problems is worldly people's conclusions and solutions, right? And so for us to go, but it is our calling as the church to come alongside, especially brothers and sisters. And we have Christian brothers and sisters who are among the government agents, who are among the, the police, who are among the soldiers, and who are among the immigrants, in this situation. So we have the freedom to go and minister to all of them. So our church is in the process of figuring out how and where to partner. And it turns out Samaritan's Purse and the, the Texas Baptist already have a presence down there um, at the border. When we first started talking about it, a member of our staff felt a strong um, leading that, that El Paso was where we needed to focus attention. I know we could have found someplace closer, but this was a this was a strong leading. Well, soon after he communicated that was the shooting at the Walmart in El Paso. And so realizing we have, we have church members who are already in El Paso who are doing ministry or other roles in El Paso already. And so for us to say, how do we go there and in support of them and in support of all the people who are involved, the brothers and sisters who are there, how do we do that? So well, here's what we need. Here's what I'm inviting you to do. If this is a ministry that is near and dear to your heart that you say, I, you know what? I want to make a difference there. I want to make a difference in that place. Um, here's, what, here's the way we do things here more and more, better and better, is to say this. We need someone to step up. We need people to step up and say, you know what, I, I may not be able to go and be involved, but I would love to dedicate myself to prayer nonstop during this. 
or, or I would love to be a part of the people who go and serve if we send a group of people there. But we also need a person or two to step up and say, I want to take point on this. I want to be the minister in lead of this ministry. If you're one of those three roles, you need to take out your bulletin and look at Lance's or Rebecca's emails and send them an email and say, I want to be a part of this. If you say, listen, I may even should be that point person. Talk with me about this. Figure out what that means and let us know. Um, this is, we are taught through Scripture. Listen to this. First John, the same author that we've been studying, 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for all of us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in words or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if this is a crisis that, that you think God is calling you to be a part of his solution for, which means to go down and encourage everyone who's involved in a very difficult situation. Um, and, and again, the world is throwing all of its solutions at it, which is making it worse day after day. And what we need is the presence, the people of Jesus Christ, to mix into that. And I know they're there already. And to mix into that more and more in order to bring the type of reconciliation that only Christ gives. The king will reply, it says in Matthew 25, I truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, the least of my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This passage is used for all kinds of stuff, but it is fundamentally about us being a blessing to other Christ followers in their need. And there are people down there who need water, and they need to be visited in prison, and they need to be clothed, and they need to be taken care of, and that's the very things that we get to do for one another. There are brothers and sisters down there, Christ followers, experiencing on all sides of this. This is Jesus at work. To continue this thought very quickly, while I was with them, I want you to listen to this. I'm going to summarize this very quickly. Verse 12 of John 17. While I was with them, Jesus is praying. I kept them in your name, which was you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. Now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Here you have Jesus using these phrases. I was with them. I kept them. I guarded them. I did not lose one of them. That I want them to have my joy, that I have given them, that I have kept them. This, this language of what he has done for his followers. Kept with them, kept them, guarded them, given them, keep them. This is, this is the prayer that Jesus is praying. He is praying to the Father here in the last hours of his life, looking down through time to take these 11 and protect them, guard them, guide them, because he, they're not being called out of the world. They are being stuck slap in the middle of the world, and the world will hate them. So we don't, we don't look to the world to approve of us. We don't look to the world to think we're doing things well. What we've been called to transcends what the world could ever even dream of, the type of love and sacrifice. The world's not going to go down there. You're not going to see video cameras up setting up watching Christians take care of people in places like the border. That doesn't, that doesn't work well in the media, so we're not going to see that. That's not going to be publicized well, but it's going on, and it will continue to go on, and everywhere in the world it's going on, and that, may, that is part of, we can give to the, you can go today 
And you can donate money to either one of these organizations because they need it in the crisis that they're dealing with down there. As we develop the plan to go, you can go. And certainly we can pray for those who are involved in it. We already have people there. We need to be praying for them. This is where we are. For us, all of us, and the last, the transition verse that we'll move with next week is 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That alone will always be enough for the world to hate us, for us to speak the truth. Um, even if that truth is hard for us, is shaming for us to own. So as we live this out, this reconciliation he's called us to, I ask that you would pray with me and see where the Spirit is leading you in this as well. Father, I pray that you will search us and know us. You know where there are wicked thoughts, where there are racist thoughts, where there are bigoted, prejudiced thoughts about some, any population. Father, I pray that the love and respect that you call us to in your word is something that would flow out of us and that divisions, whatever they may be, will be things that, that your love from us, that the flood of the spring of living water that you have from us would blow right through them. And then the, the end, all the divisions, some which are real, some which are fake, some which are man-made, some of which are, are, are just inflamed. God, that all of them would fall by the wayside, that they would grow strangely dim in the power of your glory and your grace. Lord, I pray that you would change us in this, that this would be a place of reconciliation of all kinds, not because of me or church staff or leadership or a building or any of that. None of us are capable of that. We're terrible at that stuff. But your son is magnificent at it and that we'll be reconciled in his sacrifice, truly communing together because of him, through him, in him. Sanctify us with your spirit and your truth. We ask in your son's name. Amen.